0: Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminowars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. The Seminole Wars are Forgotten Wars relegated usually to a lean general paragraph or two in U.S. history books. Lack of narrative recognition, however, is not limited to textbook accounts. Aside from the Dade battlefield, preserved and conserved as a Florida State Park about a century back, one would be hard pressed as late as 20 years ago to locate the full contours of a Seven Wars battle site with great confidence. Some of this is understandable. When the army abandoned its wooden or earthen structured forts in Florida in the 1830s and 1840s, it usually burned them to the ground. The Florida climate and the organic nature of the forts themselves has meant little remains in the ground some 185 years later. Fauna overgrowth has obscured them as well. And then they were the pioneers. They often settled at the ruins of former army forts. This made sense. The army had located many forts near the Fort King Military Road. They built them to protect bridges, crossing streams, and rivers, which both soldiers and settlers used. The nearby water provided the daily sustenance soldiers needed for hydration, sanitation, and other purposes. It served the same purpose for later settlers. These pioneers spied these favorable locations, and rather than starting from scratch, they built where the Army had already cleared the land, repurposing existing materials as they could. Given the subsequent extensive commercial development of Florida land in the succeeding years, today one would need to search intently to find a neglected battle site or fort site or even seminal village site without prior survey knowledge of the terrain. Fortunately, this has begun to change. One great reason for this is, pardon the term, the pioneering survey work by the Gulf Archaeological Research Institute, or GARY, from Crystal River, Florida. GARY is the only independent, not-for-profit organization focused on preserving both the archaeological and the natural heritage of Florida. GARY takes a holistic approach to studying the past. This approach includes consideration of natural history, ecology, hydrology and sedimentology to comprehensively investigate past peoples and the environments they inhabited. One of its focuses is the Seminole Wars. Joining us today is Sean Norman, Gary's acting executive director and a member of the board for the Seminole Wars Foundation. Sean explains some of what Gary has learned from its battle site excavations over the years, how this has enhanced understanding of how combatants waged the Seminole Wars, and what benefits the identification of such sites holds for communities that surround them. Sean Norman, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thanks for having me here. Sean, what's the most significant find from excavations that Gary has done that are linked to the Seminole Wars?
1: Narrowing it down to a single thing is kind of difficult because a lot of these projects were really starting to combine a lot of the information that we've had from previous projects to work it into a greater picture. Fort King's kind of the brown jewel of sites that we've excavated thus far because of the success in getting it made into a National Historic Landmark, the fact that it's a really nice developed park in the center of Ocala, and that basically it's an ongoing series of archaeology projects to bring uh, Seminole Wars to the public.
0: And what was Fort King like before Gary came by?
1: Before. People have known about the location of Fort King since the foundation of the city of Ocala. But um, people have been going back, collecting artifacts, looting with or without permission of the landowner for a while. And so the general location was known, but there really weren't a lot of details. It was basically just a place to go and collect artifacts. In the late 80s, early 90s, the city came more engaged in the property. Had an archaeologist do a little bit of work out there. And then when Gary came on, it developed into the process that would eventually lead into a public park. You know, the place had been farmed over for years after uh, uh, the abandonment of the fort. And then people had just been collecting artifacts and building up around the area.
0: So without necessarily intending it, Gary has had a positive influence on the site of Fort King through its excavation.
1: Absolutely, it really has. Gary had always intended on working with the local community, got a strong collaboration usually with local parties, local historic societies, ranging all the way up to Seminole Tribe of Florida. An initial study in 1994 had just reiterated the initial phase and then by 1999, a much larger study had been done in collaboration with the city. We're now looking at a reconstructed fort and the eventual construction of a museum in Ocala, which should do a lot to highlight the area. Some people view idealistically Ocala as uh, the next St. Augustine as far as trying to make it a center for living history or representative of a certain time period.
0: What are the advantages of historical archaeology over prehistorical
1: archaeology,
0: and why is that not enough to tell the whole story?
1: The great advantage of historical archaeology over prehistoric archaeology is that you've got the porting document. It's just amazing perspective on um, what life was like in the past. However, the documents don't really cover everything. For example, Fort King is one of the most important forts of the Second Seminole War, occupied off and on between 1827 and 1846, yet there are surprisingly few drawings of it. While we know that there are things blacksmith shops, There's very, very few accounts because usually the people who write diaries and all that or the officers making reports don't really focus on that kind of thing. Archaeology really lets us answer certain details that's not necessarily available in the document. We combine that by working on a series of Ford battlefields and now we're trying to work toward looking at the seminal side with seminal settlement.
0: How does Gary operate?
1: is a nonprofit research organization. We focus primarily on coastal uh, ecology and coastal prehistory, plantation archaeology, and then the Seminole Wars. We're an assemblage of a series of associates um, with different degrees of of activity. We range from at-large associates, such as uh, John Nenino, who's a professor at Eastern Kentucky University, um, who does work on prehistoric mounds. We will have visiting scholars occasionally, and then you write grants, work on it, and you combine teams with different people on the staff, depending on different people's um, skill sets. We operate usually about 10 projects a year, probably four major projects a year throughout the various topics, and we mostly focus on the areas around our lab in Crystal River, so we do Citrus County, Florida, Sumter County, Fernando, and Marion County. We do work through various parts of the state as well.
0: What's the type of training that your Gary specialists have in order to do this?
1: We have different levels. Most people are research associates. We have research assistants, and then below that, we research interns. Pretty much everyone has advanced degrees of some sort. Those of us who do a lot of the prehistory stuff have a strong environmental focus, a lot of uh, paleoecology, a lot of soil analysis, geomorphology. And then the historic archaeologists like Jill Principe is very, very familiar with plantation level stuff, Michelle Savillich, Gary Ellis are experts in Seminal Wars archeology. span Research associates are expected to bring in grants. Everyone has at least a master's degree at this level. Research assistants just work on other people's projects. They're not really expected to bring in grants themselves. That's usually for people who are in different degrees of education. Um, they're in the middle of getting their bachelor's degree or uh, or getting their master's degree before they're really ready to take on their own projects and then interns are usually people in their undergrad or, or in the process of getting an undergrad or an associate's degree looking to get experience in the field sometimes they're looking to get experience so that they can get into grad school and then once again they're not really expected to bring in projects but they provide valuable assistance and data collection on other projects how
0: many people are part of the gary operation
1: Right now we're around 10 people. Probably about five of us are fully active right now.
0: And so when you get a grant that allows you to be funded to go out to do a dig, you assemble a group that has the requisite skills for that particular site, as opposed to some other site where other skills may be required.
1: Generally, yes. For example, me, my colleague uh, Jonathan Dean and Gary Ellis, we tend to work on all the project do a lot of prehistory and historic stuff but we have one meteorologist who's uh, employed with us, Ken Nash, our director of physical science, and he does a lot of historic weather analysis. But again, not all projects do that, or that might be that, or that might be a small portion of the project. He'll do some of our GIS work and such, and then it depends. If we need soil coring done on a project, then certain people are called in. We're usually small enough, and most of us are versatile enough that we collaborate on each other's projects pretty regularly.
0: And some of what you do substitutes for a lack of the historical record, but some of what you do also corroborates the written historical record.
1: Absolutely. And on top of that, we rely on historical record in other aspects. They're not just archaeology projects, like when we get to the, the Battles of the Whipracucci, was essentially a an archival project of just gathering up what everyone had written about the series of battles in the early part of the Second Seminole War. And then Fort King Road baggage train project was just looking at post-returns and combining that with some GIS to look at analysis of logistics, how troops moved back and forth along this one avenue during the war. We use them in conjunction with each other. And yeah, so a lot of times that there's stuff that doesn't appear in the material record, and you need those written documents to fill in those gaps.
0: What goes into a typical archaeological dig, if any of these can be called typical?
1: It does definitely vary by the type of project. We employ soil coring on a lot of projects, but that's usually if you're in a stationary area, like Fort King, where before we found the actual structure or the layout of the foundation, we knew the general area where it was. So we were within hundreds of feet. On the other hand, right now, Chukachati project that we're working on or the Wahoo Swamp project. When you're dealing with vast areas, things like metal detecting and shovel tests are your primary method. If you need to cover a large area, metal detecting is definitely the way uh, to do it. I put in shovel tests right next to areas with considerable amounts of metal and have come up with absolutely nothing. There are regular methods there's always some process of analyzing the soil, figuring out what erosion's like, how the landscape has changed in the last 200 years. It depends on what type of land we're looking at. Also, sometimes what the landowner's willing to allow us to do. Some landowners don't let you on your property at all. Some, with, you're only allowed to do shallow testing like metal detecting. Others are more open to large-scale excavation. It depends on context, the types of sites that you're looking at, how much time you have, how much money you have. A lot of factors go into it.
0: During the second Summoner war, the military often suspended campaigning when the summer season became too oppressive for operations. What constraints does Gary operate under
1: these days? For one thing, and we'll get to that when we get to the Battle of Wahoo Swamp, Richard Keith called the territorial governor most of 1836, calling for a summer campaign immediately, starting in 1836. The whole idea that they didn't have to fight during the summer, or wouldn't fight during the summer, it wasn't always there. Just a trend that happened like, early to middle stages of the war. For us, though, yeah, I generally prefer not to be out there in the summer if I can. Yeah, metal attacking out last week was pretty brutal, especially for my volunteers. But the main thing is it just comes down to schedules. Usually the state fiscal year ends around July and then our ABPP grants are usually due around August. So by this point in the year, we've usually wrapped stuff up and we're working on reports, but on the two-year projects, if we have to work through the summer and the year before the report is due, we will, it just depends how scheduling goes with other projects and again, land acts. For example, right now on Chuka Jetty, I'm down to one property that I'm left with. I'm not planning on requesting access to any more properties. However, we still do have active requests out right now. While I'm not planning on really looking at much more, if some of our open requests uh, if we get a response to those, yeah, I will go out and do some investigation. Try not to work during the summer if we can help it, but sometimes you can't help it.
0: How long does an excavation project take?
1: I would just call them projects. A lot of them are what we call surveys. Right now at Chugachetti, I'm looking for presence or absence of a site. Some portions of it, we were able to excavate areas that were already known, whereas when you're first looking for it, a lot of times you don't really get to excavate. Most of our grants for the Seminole Wars are done through ABVP, National Park Service grants. Those take two years. On the other hand, a lot of our projects, like at Fort King, about a year. Fieldwork, it depends. The blacksmith shop that we're working on at Fort King right now, that was field work, a few days a week, off and on from Christmas through probably early March with a couple scattered days here and there. The key thing is field work is really just dependent on how big an area you have to study at how ambitious you're being. This one here took three to four months, and you're talking about an area that's only, I don't know, less than 50 by 50 feet. On the other hand, we are trying to very intensively, but slowly look at an area. Whereas Chukachati, I'm covering a broad swath of an entire county. That'll take two years total. Field work will probably run for about a year, year and a quarter total on that one. Writing and lab analysis takes a long time. Pretty much for every hour in the field, you're spending probably three hours at least doing lab analysis and writing. This depends. It can be long and drawn out, kind of what your obligations are, and also what the schedule of the client is. For the federal grants, you're on a very tight time schedule. You have to abide by those contract details. On the other hand, when we're working with City of Ocala and Fort King Heritage Association, they're looking to reconstruct something on the site, then we have to abide by what their schedule is or what their funding program is like. It's variable.
0: Tell us about why it's so important to write the reports after you've done the archeological survey.
1: One of the nice aspects of doing it through these grants is you, know, you are kind of held accountable. It is a problem in archeology span of people not actually finishing their work. It happens for a variety of reasons. The actual writing part of it's pretty daunting. And like I said, it's the most time consuming part of the process. A lot of people just get distracted by other projects, especially a problem with grad students. That's not your thesis. You might move on to something else. You are finished. And then some people literally just run out of resource. And rather than writing up what they have, they still want a nice, complete, finished product. So they'll just wait and wait, and then it just never gets written. So it is nice having the timeframes that we have to deal with keeps you moving along. And then on top of that, it adds usually some guidelines or standards as far as methods, application of things like Kakoa or to get historians and archeologists thinking on similar terms at least as far as the way we evaluate landscapes. And then the downside to reports is that they're usually dull, very technical things, and they may not necessarily be accessible to the public. Now, for the ABPP ones, you know, we have to make redacted copies, and those are technically accessible. However, they're not easily accessible. You can't just go down to your local library and check one out. You have to know who's been producing these types of reports, and you usually have to request them, or you can request uh, access, I believe, through Library of Congress. For example, I don't even really get to see reports that other people are doing on other battlefield grants very easily. I usually have to go track them down myself. Then you also have the issue of property sensitivity. That's why you redacted copies. Artifact hunting and looting are still definite problems. I produce this nice report that can lead people straight to a fort or to a battlefield, risk endangering the site a little bit more. And then when you give people adapted copies, sometimes people are very disappointed because it might exclude certain maps or it might not have some of the spatial locations that they're really interested in. But there's a lot of other good stuff that does come out of uh, reports. For example, there's usually recommendations that go to the landowners or land managers on what they can do to usually further prevent any damage to the sites. For example, at Camp Izzard, we produce fine examples of what kiosks should look like, the text that could go on them. While that's never been employed, the idea gets tipped around of maybe having some public interpretation at Camp blizzard from time to time, and we then direct them to the kiosks that have already been designed. A lot of that information also goes into museum interpretation or signage on other sites such as Fort King. Really, my favorite part of it is the public outreach, where we use a lot of that information, boil it down to an hour or less, and give public talk. We always try to give a public talk at the conclusion of a project in the area where the project took place, trying to be involved with the communities at the conclusion of fieldwork for Wahoo Swamp. We gave a presentation last fall. Now, we're still in the process of finishing that report. We gave that in Sumter County at Dade's Battlefield. Since then, we've had requests for uh, that same presentation from the Citrus County Historical Society, which hopefully I'll be able to give an online presentation in September. So we'll try to advertise that on uh, Seminole Wars Foundation and Gulf Archaeology Research Institute's uh, Facebook pages. And then you get other interests like uh, Central Florida Anthropological Society was interested in the topic. And I also take that down and I'll take segments of that and I'll make those into scholarly presentations like uh, Field of Conflict uh, conference. I was going to talk about finding battlefields in swamp terrain and interpreting first-hand accounts or primary sources of the battle uh, landscape and terrain. These like massive texts that might not necessarily be fun to read. For example, I think the first volume of uh, the Micanopia Report is like 500 pages, and the second volume is about the same size, literally just filled with tables, graphs, and charts, and different graphics. When we're able to turn that into signage and public presentations and public discussions, maybe even tours of some of the sites, that's where all that data really comes to use and the public gets to see it. Why is it
0: a bad practice for would-be treasure hunters to visit a battle site with their metal detectors to excavate artifacts?
1: The problem is you're literally removing the evidence from sites when that happens. You'll have people will come back years later sometimes with their collections. And I do work with old metal detectors of previous collectors from time to time. They can provide good insight into some of these sites. But the main problem is once an artifact's taken out of the ground, it loses most of its context. Somebody can give it back to me and tell me approximately where they found it. But if I don't get the exact depth of where it came from, the exact location, types of oils that were around it, then I'm really losing a lot of information. Besides
0: treasure hunting, sometimes even conservation efforts can disturb or even destroy an archaeological site. Please
1: talk about that. A lot of people just kind of incidentally impact sites on their own lands. It shifts in wetlands, creating culverts, farming. As soon as a site is made, it's in danger, and it slowly degrades. can't really stop it from degrading altogether, but you can prevent intentional and unintentional services from happening.
0: What is this concept, rescue archaeology, and how might it be employed here in Florida for a Seminole War battlefield?
1: It's awkward terminology. You get terms like salvage archaeology is usually a four-letter word, although getting used more and more often regarding the stuff on the coast. Now, I deal with a lot of that for prehistoric stuff, but when you think about what the Seminole Tribe of Florida has been doing on Egmont, In the last hundred years, Egmont heat has lost a third of the island. The western battlements from the Spanish-American War are way out in the Gulf of Mexico. So what's happening is this place was used as a prison camp and eventually a deportation center for the Seminole, the island's literally being lost. They know that there were deceased Seminole buried there on the property and the human remains had supposedly been removed from all the different capacities from Civil War occupation through early 20th century occupation. But you do have initiatives or like what the Seminole did at Egmont Key to learn what you can about the site before it's completely lost. Battlefields, you're more of endangered usually of development. Things like the villages in far quickly engulfing large sections of the Fort King Road. While there's a certain amount of what's called cultural resource management that's done ahead of development, because it's in private sector, it doesn't really answer a lot of real research questions. It's just the very basic minimum of what needs to be done before you can develop. In regards of rescue or salvage, local community might understand that Something like this is coming down the road, and that's something that something needs to be done now. Ideally, you would always protect the land, don't really fully excavate out a site so that people can come investigate it later on. Hopefully, with better technique, more information, better set of eyes. But in some cases, if the site's literally going to be destroyed, for example, Hernando County dealing with uh, the Chukchettie stuff, center swath of the county's been mined out for a phosphate mine. In some cases, yeah, you might actually need to rescue a site before it can be completely destroyed. Usually kind of a last-ditch effort. A lot of places are at least relatively protected. and, And in a lot of cases, at least the basal damage has already been done from logging or farming for the last 200 years. So you can just inform people on how to minimize that in the future.
0: What options do builders have when they discover artifacts on the property on which they're building?
1: When a developer's coming through, they can just pay for the archeology span to go through. Usually finding sites doesn't really prevent that. There may be incentives, especially if things are eligible for the National Register of Historic Places. The National Historic Landmark, you're definitely not allowed to fully excavate it out because you can actually lose that status. There can be incentives, typically developers are willing just to front the money and pay for it to be excavated completely, or usually have enough influence to where it's not considered important enough to move on to further stages. If you're talking about a development of a house, usually selling the first house is enough to pay for the archaeology. There can be incentives to protect, and there are programs to purchase land that local organizations can purchase land. For example, I believe the area where Fort Francisco de Pupo, uh, uh, an early fort during the Spanish colonial era, an effort to try to buy land from a developer using grants money. But, you know, it's up to the developer whether or not they want to abide by it. (laughs) There are some incentives, but ultimately it's just up to the conscience and uh, desires of the developers.
0: But it doesn't have to be a false choice between are the battlefields here for us or are we here for the battlefields?
1: You have to strike a balance, preserving your history. Pointing out in Hernando County, the downside is they needed economic development. A lot of the economy has been based off mining, especially after Orange Grove went away. Mining became the primary source of income for the county. And then financially, that county's kind of hard up, so it's kind of hard to remove that. But the thing is, you have to do a compromise. What sites you're going to save, what sites you can't save. When you're in such dire straits like you are in Hernando County at this point, you almost need to save anything that is available simply because they've got stuff left. From all three wars, there's something like 500 forts were constructed across Florida. Yes, we don't need to save all of them. A lot of forts were occupied for less than a year, saw no action, and were far removed from any actual theaters of war. may not have been heavily involved in logistics or supplies or anything like that or transport. You don't necessarily need to save all of them, but the thing is, if you can give, usually, communities a representative site, then that allows them to interpret a full body of history around that. It's there were several sites in Citrus County, you have Fort Cooper there were plenty of forts in Marion County, you've got Fort King. Basically just having representative places. A lot of times there's at least a small subset of each community that wants to bring attention to their history. If you just give them at least one site to rally around, that's usually a good thing.
0: They may discover that a site that's identified could be a tourist draw.
1: Yeah, that's usually the key thing. All this comes into politics. Now, some politicians do have an interest in, in history they had a pretty good amount of support from the local government in Marion County for Fort Kent On the other hand, Like I said, a lot of people are economically focused. They aren't nearly as enthused about that. You have to raise it depending on what goals of the government and what the people are in that area. If you can bring in money to a local area, which will then help support the local interpretation and support the local economy, then that's usually for the best. The idea with Fort King is if you bring living history and then hopefully bring a world-class museum here in about 10 years, then you'll really draw in people to a place that might not really be a tourist area. Same thing hoping for Brooksville. And then going beyond that, a lot of these sites can work together. We were talking about a Camp Izzard uh, interpretive area was that each site should have a panel that directs you to the other Seminole War sites the other sites that you should see. It should redirect people to go to Atatiki, the museum on the Seminole Reservation in Big Cyprus. It's a wonderful museum. It's just, it's really far out of the way. So if you're on your way to Disney, you might not want to head down. There. On the other hand, if you see some of these other sites, you go to Dave's Battlefield and you say, hey, there's another really nice museum showing the Seminole perspective on all this, as well as Seminole life beyond just the wars, then people might be more inclined. Same thing is if people see just a sign while jogging or riding horses, by Camp Wizards they might be, hey, maybe we should check out this thing in Fort King, or maybe we should check out Dade's battlefield. It's the idea, in addition to just building a local economy, you can actually build a network, and that's the idea behind those heritage trail guides that the state of Florida produced.
0: What can Gary use today that was unavailable to archaeologists in the past?
1: As a whole, we can actually be fairly low tech. We developed our own pouring machines. We will hire some people for ground penetrating radar from time to time. We mostly do everything by hand, a lot of hand mapping, traditional slow excavation, metal detecting such. And there's definitely advancements in things like metal detectors. They've gotten better. Things like using pinpointers regularly makes things faster. I can only imagine what it was like before that. But I would say the main thing that helped is just the body of knowledge. It's by working on a series of projects in a relatively small area, everything's fat, and so everything fits in together. Post-Return that uh, Michelle Savillis worked on a few years ago for Fort King Road, that's providing insight into the blacksmith shop. Or Camp Izzard, Gary identified what the size of, of shot that you're looking for when trying to identify a seminal position, that's coming in handy while I test assertions about seminal armament at places like chick and Wahoo Swamp. To me, that's it. kind of the use of databases and building of knowledge, the fact that everything backs in and we're really starting to get a much better foundation.
0: Geospatial archaeology is a relatively new field where people can look at the satellite images and see patterns that you can't see when you're standing there on the ground. How much is Gary able to use this for it? surveys
1: that is actually one of the most important things that we use we do that uh, especially for a lot of our prehistoric stuff but but for the historic stuff as well yeah aerial imagery would be called remote sensing that is by far the most useful because you're mostly getting to see how landscape changes not so much like the middle east or mesoamerica where you're looking for tells or pyramids or something like that but for this especially looking how the landscape has changed for example, the traditional area where the town of Chukachet is plotted on the 1847 surveys, when you're physically there, you this low-lying area, half of it's covered by a road now, wondering if this had turned into a drainage or was it always a drainage. Start going through aerials and you can literally see when, you know, it was deforested, when drainage ditches were dug into it, how the landscape's been altered. Same thing like Wahoo Swamp, you can see where uh, roads have been added, where culverts have been added, where the wetlands have been kind of moved, where things have been drained. I mean, That is absolutely key in defining what our environment looks like today, why it looks like that and with ways it's been changed. So does it look like today? Would it look like during the events that you're trying to study that? And then the other thing I would say, going back to technology, is GPS. GPS wasn't available for the year 2000 to the general public. is amazing for piece plotting artifacts. Even if you can't get down to the sub-meter, sometimes just doing that is much better than trying to rely on knowing where you're at and then plotting it in later, or having to do massive plotted grids across large areas. I presume
0: Jeff Huff and Jerry Morris's book, The Fort King Road, Then and Now, was of some assistance to you as you did your survey?
1: Yeah, we relied on their book and then seeing if that there were any adjustments or, like I said, specifically seeing how the landscape changed. That was um, very helpful.
0: Sean, how'd you get an interest in archaeology and, in particular, Florida archaeology with uh, Gary?
1: For me, I've always had an interest in history. I grew up in Nevada with a strong interest in Western history throughout the the 19th century, and then the American Civil War. When I eventually moved to Georgia as a child, I increased that history in the American Civil War and a lot of military history, American Revolution, War of 1812. always just enjoyed going to museums, different sites of that type. When I got into undergrad, I started a bachelor's degree in history, but I really intended on going in archaeology from the get-go. I ended up enjoying my program so much that I just completed a degree in history. I came to University of South Florida to get a master's in applied anthropology. My focus was prehistory. I intended on doing woodland period, prehistoric archaeology, but I always had at least a personal interest in military history. And then what happened was I got on with Gulf Archaeology because I was doing soil-pouring analysis of the Crystal River Mound, a large mound complex that is actually uh, our labs on the same property. A lot of our stuff is environmentally focused, so I got into doing prehistoric work with Gulf Archaeology on that regard. While I was there, Gary Ellis and Michelle Village had been doing a lot of Seminole War stuff, and I just got brought in as a technician, at hand, to help dig on the stuff. The first book I was given on Seminole Wars was Mary Lou and John all book on all three wars, and then it went on from there. Seminole Wars a really small community. I think you've already interviewed about half the historians. I had looked into doing military archaeology at one time. Now I dabble in both. I run the prehistoric program at Gulf Park, and then I, with everyone on their historic programs, it was just a lot of fun.
0: If, the public wants to learn more about Gary, or someone in the public has found some site or some artifacts, do you want them to contact you? And how can they do so?
1: We get contacted pretty regularly. Sometimes we can help people, sometimes we can't. Send us an email. You can find us either on, on book, Gulf Archaeology Research Institute, or gulfarchaeology.org. Our website and our contact information should be on there. People are just concerned about something in their own community, like Chukachati. That project was first brought to our attention when I was down at the American Indian celebration and in Big Cypress that the Seminole put on usually around beginning of November. So I was just down there to have fun for the day, talk to some of the geologists for the Seminole tribe, and a couple of concerned citizens from the historic Hernando Preservation Society brought up this project. And it's about four years later, we're right in the middle of it. There are all kinds of different ways that people bring up projects, but yeah, they're they're, welcome to contact us. My email is spn at org. We'll try to help in any way we can.
0: Sean, this wraps up this episode. I want our listeners to know that we're going to come back and speak to you about some of these sites and what Gary has learned from doing those sites. For now, I just want to say thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars.
1: Thanks for having me, Patrick, and definitely look forward to coming on later and uh, giving a lot more details on uh, some of our other projects.
0: If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of The Summon Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roast 'em, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merum and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.